As you're turning to uh, Genesis chapter 13, uh, let me just remind you or inform you if you're visiting with us. Um, it's, it's our practice, at least thus far here at Grace Covenant, to, um, to stop and do uh, Advent sermons uh, basically in the even-numbered year. So every other year, we stop in whatever we're doing, and we stop and we, we do Advent series. And then in the odd-numbered years, um, we tend to just keep on uh, moving through with uh, wherever we are. Uh, and so that's where we are this morning, Genesis chapter 13, but that wouldn't, um, it wouldn't be fair to say that, well, if we're in Genesis 13, then that has nothing to do with Jesus. Uh, we will see quite the opposite uh, is true. Genesis chapter 13, let me ask that you stand as we read God's Word together. Uh, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. And now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel uh, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved as his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you to your offspring, and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. And we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would teach us not just that we would understand that which you have inspired, but that you would use it to train us, to equip us for every good work, as you have promised your word does. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. We are um, 
surrounded by people who are unsure of their salvation. We're surrounded by people who are um, convinced that they are on the verge of God zapping them. They're on the verge of losing their salvation forever, permanently, for good. Who are unconvinced that God loves them. That God would embrace them. That God would accept them. You have had conversations with people who near the end of their life said to their family members, I hope I've done enough. Or, as Nancy saw the other day in um, one of the schools in Athens, we'll leave it at that, um, a sign on a, a teacher's room or a bathroom or something, that it was this poem, sometimes I'm, it was basically sometimes I'm good, sometimes I'm bad. It was sort of that kind of poem. Then it said, I hope that God likes me the day that we meet, if only for a chance to sit at His feet and be by His side year after year. I hope that when I get to heaven, God likes me. That's, that's what this poem, and it's hanging up like, like this is what we should believe. This is what we uh, should understand. And there are... Um, there are people around us who are convinced that any sin, certainly any sin that anybody else finds out about, is enough to disqualify them for heaven, much less for Christian service. That any sin is enough to, to kick them out of heaven, much less out of participating in, engaging in, Service to the King of Kings. This passage actually shows otherwise. This passage proves otherwise. I want to. Um, you have to be careful, and you have to be careful in pulpits when you make politically sounding comments. This is not a political comment. I promise, I'm not making a political statement. One way or another, if you hear it that way, it's your fault, it's not mine. This is being recorded, so everyone will know that I've said this, that it's, I'm not trying to make any kind of political um, statement whatsoever. I mean, if Scripture offends us, fine. Um, if, if Scripture's opinions you know, we don't like, well, that's, you know, that's fine. You know, my political opinion is not worth anything, so why would you bother listening to me anyway? That being said, one of the consequences, if you will, of a recent election here in Alabama, um, the news media and the people outside of, particularly outside of Alabama, people that I've watched kind of comment, and I don't even mean like, you know, senators, I don't mean political people, I just mean general people, my peers who don't live in Alabama, um, They've painted evangelical Christianity as completely unconcerned about morality. They've painted 
evangelical Christians as less moral than even the pagan world around us. They've said, well, look, I mean, because their candidate has an R by his name, they'll ignore whatever it is he's done, or whatever the case may be. Because he's a a professing Christian, they'll ignore uh, these accusations against him. That's kind of the way the spin has gone out in the world around us. And again, I'm not making any political statement whatsoever, except to say this. This This is the only statement I'm trying to make. When the world around us has higher moral standards than the church, we have a problem. When when pagans have a higher moral standard than Christians, we have a problem. That's the background to Genesis 13. That's the setting. If you're going to sort of set the scene for this story, this chapter in the story of uh, not just uh, God's work with Abraham, but God's work, work in bringing about His redemption. Abram's fresh out of Egypt. He's left Egypt because Pharaoh had higher moral standards than he did. You know, the, the promised seed, the one who had already received the promise of God, I'm going to bless you and nations are going to come from you and your offspring will be like the sand on the shore or the stars in the sky. And in the very next passage, he's lying and cheating and trying to be conniving down in Egypt. Abram's, that's the background of where we are. He's been out moraled by pagan Egyptian Pharaoh. That's the context of where we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 13. He didn't just leave Egypt, he was actually run out of Egypt. But notice where the chapter begins. See, that wasn't the end for Abram. That wasn't the end for Abram and Sarah and their offspring. That wasn't the end of God's covenant promise. Notice that his failure, his moral failure in Egypt doesn't mean the end of God's work with Abram. Because notice where the chapter begins. Rather than being banished from God for all eternity, rather than being banished from God's presence for good, you're all done, you're out, that's it. That was your one chance and you've blown it, you're gone. Notice where he is. In verses 1-3, through we're told he's right back where he started from. He's brought his tent... He's setting his household up exactly where he had been before. Where he had been at the beginning, verse 3 tells us, between Bethel and Ai. He's returned exactly to the same spot he left. In chapter 12, he went down to Egypt. Here he went up from Egypt. And he lands right back at his front door. He could have left his tent there. And he's gone right back to his tent, exactly where it was, exactly in the same spot. He's right back in Bethel, 
where his tent had been before. Right where the altar that he had built to worship God when he first settled in this land. In other words, Abram's been restored. There's a picture right there of of Abram's restoration before God. He's, He's living out repentance. He's learned from his mistake, if you will, in Egypt. He's repented of that and he's turned from that back to the place that God would have him, right in the the middle of this promised land where God had set him down before. In fact, he's right back at the altar and there's worship even in his restoration. One Jewish commentator calls this place the, the place that Abram loved so dearly because on it stood the monument to the symbolic conquest of the land and its consecration to Yahweh. As he lands right back where this this altar was, he's gone back to the place where he had made an altar at the first. When he first got there, he built an altar, sacrificed animals to God. He worships the God who brought him there. And now having returned from his waywardness, he runs right back to God's place and to worship and offers a sacrifice to God. What's your your reaction? What's your response when you've been caught in sin? What's your reaction? How do you respond when you're confronted with your own sin? And it may be a big deal sin. It may not be a very big deal sin. But... What's your response? What's your reaction? We, we defend. We explain. With the classic, but you response. And if it's bad enough, we will hide from our brothers and sisters in Christ. If it's bad enough, we'll hide from worship. We'll, we'll stay away from the church because well, I can't go there. I mean, why would they let me in there? Do they know what, they, they know what I've done? I think they know what I've done. They won't let me in there. I can't go to worship with with God's people. Is that how we respond? Full and true forgiveness and restoration shows itself, manifests itself in being right here. In worshiping God with God's people. Abram isn't just back home in the land, but he's back home in worship. He's back home at the altar. He's back home with God and His people. He's been rebuked by pagan Pharaoh. He's been run out of Egypt for his lack of morality and honesty and repentance shows itself. As he runs to the altar. Is that your reaction? Is that where you go when caught in sin? Notice though that he left Egypt, but he didn't leave Egypt empty handed. He left with all kinds of of great wealth. We're told in verse 2 that he was rich in livestock, silver, and in gold. And for that matter, Lot is also wealthy. We can look back to 
uh, chapter 12, verse 16, and see all the, the stuff that he got from Pharaoh. For her sake, uh, he, um, dealt well, he, Pharaoh, dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. He's, you and I go, okay, he got a farm. I mean, really? Is that really much of a blessing? No, he got, he didn't get a farm. He got a garage. A multi-car garage, garage filled with cars. That's what he got. Female donkeys were sort of the, you know, something better than Accords and Camrys. I, I assure you, it's a step up from that. Camels, well, now you're talking Rolls-Royce, Bentley. You're talking the transportation of the 1%. That, that's what you're talking about. He didn't get a bunch of, you know, just grass-eating animals. You and I see barnyard animals that just eat grass and so you don't have to actually run your lawnmower. He actually got a garage filled with Ferraris and, and Lamborghinis. That's the, the blessing he gets from Pharaoh as he returns. So, You've got this picture of Abram, in that sense, plundering Egypt several hundred years before Israel would do just that. Are you convinced that money would solve your problems? I mean, the times we think to ourselves, if I just made a little more, I'm I'm making $12 an hour, if I could make $15, if I, could, if I could add about $30,000 to my income every year, all my problems would go away. See, what happens here is that actually causes the problem. Wealth is the problem in this passage. Because, because Abram and Lot have so much, there's strife between their herdsmen. There's not room for them in the land. The land can't support them all. In other words, it's, it's precisely because of their wealth that they're now at odds with each, with each other. They're in conflict with each other. The cause of the strife, verse 7, is their great wealth, their great possessions. It wasn't that long ago that we were in Philippians 4. It wasn't that long ago that we read of, of, of Paul saying, I've learned... In, in great wealth and in poverty, to be content. It's a difficult thing to be content. We think of, of, I only need contentment in poverty. But in wealth, I have contentment because I have wealth. That, that's not the case here at all. There's, because of this great wealth, there's strife between Abram and his nephew. But there's a, 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 a sentence, a phrase, just one sentence at the end of verse 7 that seems to be almost a throwaway comment. Why, why mention at that time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land? Okay, so it reminds the Israelites, the initial audience as Moses is writing this book, perhaps in Egypt, perhaps having left Egypt and are on the way to the promised land. He's, he's writing Genesis. It would be an encouragement to them, oh wait, those Canaanites and Perizzites have been there all along and God's promise has, has stood the whole time. 
So it would be an encouragement to them, but it's also a warning, isn't it? Is it not? These pagan cultures are watching the recipients of God's promise argue. The pagan cultures are watching as these greats of the faith, if you will, at least in, in their mind. Here's, here's Abraham and, and Lot, his nephew, and their, their herdsmen can't get along. They're arguing with each other. And, and you get the sense that Moses is saying this strife, by the way, took place right under the noses of these pagan cultures. They're not going to want Abram's religion if that's what it leads to. They're not going to want to to listen to Abram's explanation of the gospel if that's the kind of thing the gospel leads to. If that's what's going to happen to my relationships, I don't want it. And so they're watching as Abram and Lot argue. Their herdsmen are at odds with each other. It would have been easy I think, and well within Abram's rights, by the way. I think, I think if I'd been in Abram's shoes, I would have said, okay, Lot, here's the deal. I'm going to take this land, and you're going to get that land. Abram instead says, hey, Lot, you choose. You make the decision. You make the call. We'll stand here. And they're, they're actually at about 3,000 feet, I think, where they're standing. And so they're able to see. They're able to look around and see all around them and, and see all the land. They can actually survey the land from, from where they are. And Abram, his solution to this strife, his answer to this conflict is to seek peace. And he does it by granting Lot the right to take first choice. It was Abram's right to choose first. He's older. The promise was given to him and not to Lot. It was, it was well within Abram's rights to, to make the choice. He decided, I'm not going to claim those rights. I don't need to hang on to that right. I don't need to, to, to claim that and tell Lot where to go. Instead, I'm going to let him make the choice himself. Even though he was the superior, even though he... Fifth commandment would have, would have granted him the right to choose. He allowed Lot to make the decision himself. He says, Lot, take your pick. Look around. Take, take what you want. Choose the land. Choose which way you'll go, and I'll go the other way. It, you, it doesn't matter. You take it. Abram shows humility and deference and respect even when he didn't have to. But he also shows something else. Do you remember why he lied in Egypt? He told Sarah, let's say you're my sister, half true, but intending, using it, intending to cover up the whole truth. Let's say you're my sister so that it'll go well with me, he said. You see, God's made a promise to me that my descendants are going to be like the sand on the shore, like the stars in the sky, like the dust of the earth, and, and nations are going to be blessed through me. That promise has been made to me, so we need to make sure that I'm safe. We need to make sure that what we do 
preserves that promise. That was what happened in Egypt. I think allowing Lot to make the choice shows Abram's settled trust in God's power to bring about his purposes. He no longer senses the need to hold on and make sure that he helps God bring about his plan. (laughs) By letting Lot choose, by saying, Lot, you take your choice, he's also saying, I trust that regardless of what Lot does, God's at work, and he's going to make his promise come true regardless of which of these pieces of land I end up with. It's a a deep, settled trust in God's power to make his promises come to fruition. So we set the options out before Lot. I don't know anybody, I don't think I know anybody, that if you gave them the the choice of heaven or hell, I don't think I know anyone that would choose hell. I'm pretty sure Lot wouldn't. Okay, ACDC was on the highway to hell, and driving and crying were going straight to hell, and, and... Um, Hank Williams Jr. didn't want to go to heaven if it wasn't a lot like Dixie. Okay, I get that, but that that doesn't necessarily mean that they would choose heaven or hell given the choice. There's a, a choice set before Lot. Would you choose heaven or hell? He would choose heaven every time. The problem is, the choice was heaven or earth. He chose earth. He was given a choice. Abram said, do you want to choose heaven or do you want to choose earth? He said, I'm taking earth every single time. Notice how verse 10 begins. Lot lifts up his eyes and he looks and behold, that land sure does look like it would produce good fruit. That land sure looks like probably the nicest garden since Eden. Probably the, the, the best place to live since God formed Eden. And he chose that. He chose based on what his eyes could see. He chose by sight rather than by faith. And there are hints in verses 10 through 13 that certainly makes us nervous, that certainly would have made Moses' initial audience really squirm. There are hints at what is to come. Because Lot chose this Jordan Valley in the direction of Zoar, Oh, and by the way, he moved his tent right up against Sodom. He looks and he says, you know what? I will choose what looks financially advantageous. And I don't care what that means for my family's spiritual growth. I'll take the money over the, 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 the spiritual blessing and health and welfare of my family. Okay, he didn't run headlong into Sodom. He did stop 
near Sodom. I, I, I suppose that's a little bit of encouragement. Think of all those times that there's a job opening laid out in front of you. Think of those times when, hey, we, we're offering you a promotion. It means moving to such and such a place. We'll offer you a, a promotion, a raise. You'll get uh, extra benefits as well. You'll get more vacation. You'll get all kinds of things. And you're like, sweet, I'm in. But do we consider the spiritual potential spiritual ramifications of those financial decisions? Do we, do we dig up info on churches in that area before we go? Do we say, I'll take the job, I'll take the position because it means greater financial security. And we all know money makes every problem go away. Lot chooses to live in the suburbs of Sodom. You know, the, the wicked, evil Sodom, as we're told. The men of Sodom were wicked. Great sinners against Yahweh. That's okay, I'll live in the suburbs. It, it won't really... Um, it won't reach me. It won't get to me. I'll, I'll live in the suburbs of Sodom and I'll be safe and protected from that. And, or, or, you know what? I can handle it. There's no, there's no Christian fellowship for Lot, if you will. There's no good church. There's no place of, of God's word, of God's promise, of God's blessing. Instead, He would move right next to these great wicked sinners a decision that he will regret for the rest of his life. Do we choose financial prosperity over the spiritual health and welfare and safety and growth of our families? See, this chapter tells the story of a test. It's a test. In God's sovereign providence, it's a test. This strife and conflict between Abram and Lot is a test. But it's not a test of Lot. It's actually a test of Abram. God's actually granting this conflict, if you will, as a way of, of, of testing Abram. And his love for God. It actually serves the purpose of getting Lot out of the way. It actually serves the purpose of, of removing Lot from Abram's family, from Abram's presence. Notice what happens in verse 14. God recounts all over again. He confirms, reconfirms, recites all over again His promise of blessing for Abram. The promise of land. The promise of offspring, of descendants. And not just one generation, but generations forever. To your offspring forever. He says, so it's, it's an eternal promise of both place and people. 
remember Abram's Abram's been getting AARP magazine for years at this point. He's been collecting Social Security for years at this point. He's retired. He, he doesn't work anymore. And yet, there's a promise of descendants, of offspring, like the dust of the earth. After worship this morning, I want one of you to grab a vacuum out of, probably in that closet right back there. And I want you to vacuum a third of this room. And then count the dust that you collect. Just in vacuuming a third of this, you grab, dump the bag out, I know it makes a bigger mess. And then just count the dust particles. That's just in a third of this room on one carpet. God promises blessing, descendants forevermore to come from Abram and for Sarah. He promises land and children, offspring, a seed forever. And that promise comes after this trial. He reinstates, if you will, he restates this promise to Abram. Lot's gone. The promise, the promise isn't for Lot. Promises for Abram and for his children. These verses, verses 14 to 18, show us that this whole event has been a test. Abram was tested when taken from his home, from his family, from his people, and told, You leave and go to a new place. Okay, God, where's that place? Let me get my GPS out. Let me just enter the address in my phone and it'll Google Maps will tell me, I'll tell you when you get there. You just leave your people, leave your land, follow me, and I'll let you know when you're there. So I can't enter an address in Google Maps? Abram passed that test with flying colors. A famine in the land. As soon as he's there and settled, builds an altar, offers a sacrifice, the next passage, there's a famine in the land. He runs away, runs to Egypt, seeks safety and protection from them, lies, cheats, whatever, all that in Egypt. He failed that test. There are people around you I don't mean around you in this room. I, re- I mean around you in the world in which you and I live, in our culture, who would say, that's it. Boy, I, I sure hope God likes me when we can meet face to face. I don't know. I mean, sometimes I pass, sometimes I fail. Sometimes I'm happy, sometimes I'm sad. Sometimes I do the right thing, sometimes I don't. I sure hope God likes me when I get there. It would be easy to say that failure in Egypt means, Abram, you're done. But God's promise to Abram wasn't based on Abram. It wasn't grounded in Abram. 
It's grounded in Christ. It's grounded in God's gracious love for a sinner. And here, here's another test. Abram and Lot are at odds with each other. There's strife between them. And Abram passes. He, he manifests a, a trust in God's power and promise by saying to Lot, you choose. It doesn't matter where I end up. God's in control of this promise, not me. I don't have to hold on to it and help God out a little bit. God needs me this time. And Abram passes. Truth is, God's using these tests to confirm His promises and to grow Abram's total, complete, utter dependence on God. God uses tests in our lives to to do just that. Not to get you back. Not to zap you for that sin last Thursday. Not to, I'll pay you out for this. It's not that at all. God uses these tests to grow our faith. To strengthen our faith. To deepen our trust and commitment and dependence on Him. Let me make four applications, in addition to the ones we made along the way. Let me make four applications from this passage. First, you and I are actually the beneficiaries of this promise. You and I are are Abram's seed according to Galatians 3. If we're in Christ, then we are Abraham's offspring. When you read verse 6.15 of Genesis 13, you're reading about yourself. You're reading about the church. It's not land these these square miles right next to the Mediterranean in Israel. It's It's us. It's the church. We are Abram's offspring. We are His seed. God has promised to build and grow and establish His kingdom on this earth. And you and I are beneficiaries of this promise to Abram. Second, you may think, you may be tempted to think that your sin disqualifies you for service in God's kingdom. If God only used sinless servants, the kingdom would be over. Truth is, he's only needed and used one sinless servant to accomplish his purposes, to bring about the fruition of his promises. He's only needed and used one. And and that one was born nearly 2,000 years ago, a birth we celebrate in a week and a day. That's why we celebrate Christmas. The only sinless servant that God needed to use, that God had to use in bringing about His purposes in this life 
We celebrate Christmas because on that day was born that one sinless servant. Your sin doesn't automatically disqualify you from service in God's kingdom or from seeing his face, seeing him face to face when that day comes. Third, in light of the death of R.C. Sproul the other day, if if you're on social media at all, it blew all kinds of people writing to attribute their understanding of the gospel, of Christ, of God's sovereignty to R.C. Sproul. There was even a hashtag trending the other day on Twitter. Table Talk Magazine tweeted a quote from Johnny Erickson Tata. Once I get to heaven... R.C. and I will have all eternity to sing praise to the God who permits what He hates in order to accomplish what He loves. Would God love for us to fail? No. Does God want you to fall? Does God want you to sin? Does God... He Allow it and permit it? Does he allow, does he want you to wander off away from him? But he'll use Lot's perilous choice, Abram's disbelief, to accomplish what he loves. Your sin doesn't automatically disqualify you from service in his kingdom. He will allow what he what he hates in order to use it and to accomplish that which He loves. And lastly, notice where this chapter began and where it ended. At the beginning of the chapter and at the end of the chapter, Abram is standing in the same place. Right next to the altar of God. It starts with worship It ends with worship. He starts in God's presence. He ends in God's presence. There's a a picture here. One, worship is always right. Worship, being in the presence of God, worship is always right. In every situation. Fresh on the heels of sin, where was Abram? Right back at the altar. Fresh on the heels of passing this test in chapter 13, where is he? Right back at the altar. He models for us total, complete dependence on God and His purposes, on God and His promises, and and bringing them about in this life. Worship is the basis of Life. We don't squeeze worship into the pattern of life. We squeeze life into a pattern of worship. That's the model of this passage. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have only needed and used one sinless servant in the accomplishment of fulfilling your promises. We thank you that you could use 
Abram, a sinner, a liar, one who, at least so far once, has felt like he needed to take hold of your work to help you out. Because, Father, we do that. You remind us here that that our deliverance on the other side isn't grounded, isn't based on how tightly we hold your hand, but how tightly you hold ours. And that as your children, Christ Himself has promised, no one can snatch us out of His hand. Father, would You use us? We know we aren't worthy. We know we have no right. We know that uh, we wander. We know that we doubt. We know that we want to take hold of Your plans and, and accomplish them for You. We know that we want to give You advice. We know that we want to tell You how to work. Father, would You deepen our dependence on Your power, on Your sovereignty, Your wisdom, And would you use us to advance your kingdom on this earth? Through Christ we ask it. Amen.